Welcome back to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. All right, folks, this is going to be part two of the Hellas series, which will cover the lead up to the third battle of Krithia. There was quite a bit of time between the second battle and the third. Needless to say, the men just didn't go on holiday. So I think it's a good time to cover what was taking place. Um, I want to take a moment to say something that I probably should have said on the last episode. This isn't a political show, but I want to get something off my chest on this show. There's a lot going on in the world right now. You turn on the news and it's heartbreaking to see what's taking place the past few months. You know, there's chaos all around. And I don't think it's going to get any better anytime soon. You know, the way Afghanistan was handled, that was horrible. And it's horrible to see already what's taking place, especially with the treatment of females. And I want to say something to every veteran of every nation that supports freedom. As a veteran myself, I have an understanding why people walk into a recruiter's office. You don't walk in with the intentions of serving your nation to to change our politicians' corrupt actions. Because let's face it, the majority of politicians will never change. No, you serve out of pride for your country, for the colors of your flag. You join up to find yourself and to be part of a brotherhood. You serve for the person who's on your left, your right, your front and back. The person who's serving for the same reason you are. At least that's what I think. It breaks my heart to think there's families out there right now struggling, wondering if their loved one was lost for no reason. It wasn't. Every person who served their country, and especially those who gave their life for freedom, to fight terrorism on its front yard instead of bringing the fight back home, it was not for nothing. We, the people who believe in freedom, owe every family that has lost a loved one a debt of gratitude. Hold your head up high with pride. Every time the national anthem plays in your country, remember those who've paid the ultimate sacrifice and know that it wasn't for nothing. Men and women have given their lives for many generations now, and I will never kneel in shame of my flag. I will always stand proud for those who gave their lives and you should too. And that's all I wanted to say about that. All right. Now, next important thing. What am I drinking for this episode? I'm drinking a fancy cocktail. I'm drinking a boulevardier. That's right. I have a few books on cocktails, and I just so happen to have one with cocktails from Paris 1920s which is where I got this recipe from. But it originally came from the book Barflies and Cocktails, released in 1927 by Harry McElhone. Harry was a famous bartender in Paris in the 20s. He was most famous for his role at Harry's New York Bar in Paris that he purchased in 1923. He left the States after Prohibition and took the bar overseas. Side note to that, There's a book called Cocktails de Paris. By some chance, if you have this book, send it to me. Just kidding. Put it in a safe spot. Because if it's an original print, it's worth some money. At least enough money to buy yourself several drinks. 
The Boulevardier drink was named after a magazine established in Paris by a writer named Erskine Gwynn in 1927. It was modeled after the New Yorker. The magazine began to attract writers such as Louis Bromfield and Ernest Hemingway. But what works in New York doesn't always work in Paris. They really rock at two different beats. Erskine closed the doors on the Boulevardier just four years after he started the paper, mainly because the paper contained a lot of gossip stories that Parisians weren't really hip to, and it created a lot of negative criticism. The drink is one ounce bourbon, one ounce sweet vermouth, one ounce Campari. Stir in a mixing glass with ice, then strain into another glass with fresh ice. Garnish with a maraschino cherry. Mm. And that is what I'm drinking. And I'll tell you what, this is a fantastic drink. This is a proper drink. And when people say, make me a proper drink, I just imagine this is something they're talking about. Ah, that's fantastic. I got to might have to go round two. I've made a slight adjustment to the format of the show. Very slight. And it may not be a big deal to you. Then again, for some, it might. Before, when I would make a drink on the show, I do drink it. But usually it's in between takes. And there's a lot of takes when making this podcast. So I don't necessarily get to enjoy it because I'm trying to focus on my script or the body of the show, you know, the meat and potatoes of this party. Well, I, did deci- I decided to try something new. Uh, if I'm drinking, because sometimes I don't, I'm going to tell you what I'm drinking, along with a little background to the drink as I just did. Then I'm going to have my drink, just as I'm doing now, while I recap the previous episode. I'm going to try this out. If it works, great. If not, I'll go back to how I was doing it before. No harm, no foul. I think it's going to be good, though. And it allows me to actually enjoy a nice beverage before I dive into this episode. Okay. So let me recap the last episode. The first and second battle of Carithia. You know... If there's a takeaway to this show, or if there's a theme to the Great War, what it stands for, I would say it has to be the little or it's no regard for human life. And the Gallipoli campaign is another great example how this supports that takeaway. The first and second battles of Carithia was just a complete slaughter. I don't know how else to put it. And I'm talking on both sides, not just the Allies. The Turks, British, French, and Anzacs suffered some serious losses during these battles. The only commander at this point that I could see who's displayed any sort of sense was German General Otto Lehmann von Sanders. He's the only general who finally said, stop, what the hell are we doing? Because every time the Turkish soldiers made an attack, it just turned into a bloodbath. Von Sanders realized the British and French weren't getting to Akibaba. 
They couldn't even take and hold Krithia. He said, let's hold our current line, let them attack, we'll repel it, and they'll continue to deplete, to deplete their forces down. Eventually, they're going to break. This is what the decision was for now. And in my opinion, this was a smart one. Lehman really was the only one who observed the situation and realized the continued assaults weren't going anywhere. He made a good strategic move by holding the line. But Surrey and Hamilton and Hunter Weston were in a pickle. They're not about to call an all-out retreat on this campaign. Even if they wanted to, Kitchener wouldn't allow it. So pushing forward was the only option. During the first and second battles, they realized the more time they took in between attacks, the more opportunity it gave the Turks to rest and recover, along with bringing up more reinforcements. The situation was a real soup sandwich. The naval guns and artillery are now playing a role in this campaign, but they still can't gain the advantage. Mainly for the artillery, it's because they're low on ammunition. The artillery was so dangerously low in 1915, they began to ration it at the Dardanelles and the Western Front. They can't crank out enough shells, and because of this, America will start producing a large amount of shells for the war. But we're not even there yet. Another big problem for the Allies during these attacks was when the men began the offensive assaults. Timing was off between the French and the British. There was confusion as there always seems to be. The soldiers would walk into walls of lead coming at them. They found themselves in ravines, which was basically no man's land. Nothing good happened there. I think you can get a sense how bad the situation had become. Finally, they're forced to halt any advancement attempts because, well, basically the men are just collapsing where they've dug in. The French and British, to include the Kiwis and a portion of the Aussies, hit a wall and the high command was forced to bring an end to the second battle. And now we get into what happened next. Actually, before we do that, let me finish my drink. And now we get into what happened next. If you look at Cape Helles and the beach landing sites from W, V to S, today it actually looks really nice from the pictures I've seen a place you might want to vacation, you know, or spend a holiday. There's wildflowers, vegetation, not to mention the Aegean Sea. At certain times, you can see the crystal clear water when the bay is calm. And now there's dozens of memorials from the campaign. It really does look stunning. But in May of 1915, Hellas had become unrecognizable. The beaches became storage depots and a place where the men could come off the line and rest. So you could imagine what a mess the beaches had turned into. Fresh men were being brought in. Makeshift roads were created, making paths to now fortified trench systems. Artillery was well dug in behind the lines. It was now a battle zone. The beaches also contained mass graves from the bodies that piled up from the start. They were finally putting some of the rotting bodies below the ground, or at least as many as they could. As I said, the artillery shell shortage was a massive problem for the British in 1915, and of course this problem spilled onto the Dardanelles. Gunners were instructed not to fire unless you have a clear picture of the enemy or if they were under attack. Fortunately for the British, the Turks had the same problem. 
In fact, the only well-equipped artillery came from the French, the 75mm. But the French 75 wasn't very effective at a great distance. It was meant for targets at a closer range. But needless to say, it was still being used and was still producing casualties. I mean, look, if you were on the opposite side of a 75, you still wouldn't want that thing firing at you. Surprisingly, another casualty producing weapon of choice that seemed to be doing a significant amount of damage was the hand grenade. This had become very popular by now. Men on both sides were tossing these things at each other like they were hot potatoes. The first time I heard a hand grenade go off in basic training, it was actually quite shocking. I really didn't know what to expect or just how loud of a bang that steel ball produced. You know, growing up in the 80s, you played war. You watched Chuck Norris movies like all the missing in actions, you know, all the Rambo movies. <laughs> and grenades in movies vary from small explosions to these huge, ridiculous fireballs blowing up like a whole house or something of the sort. Well, after you experience a live grenade detonating, you quickly realize this isn't like the movies. I'm not sure what Rambo and Chuck were tossing around, but real grenades have a five meter kill radius and can produce casualties up to 15 meters. But the detonation is loud. I mean, it has like a whopping thud. Your body really feels it. And the evolution of the hand grenade has changed over the past 100 years or so. But, but the concept is the same kill as many people as possible within this kill radius while inflicting some psychological terror for those that witness it. And you think hand grenades are cool. Bangalore's C4 is way better. I love things that go boom. You know, you know, some Americans get on this kick during the 4th of July. A veteran lives here, respect this, and don't use fireworks. <sighs> Bring it on. Bring it to my place. The bigger, the better. All my pals and I that I serve with, we love that shit. Bring it on. Mortars, rockets, whatever you call them. I love it. But my dog hates it. So we do have to keep him inside while they're going off. Poor thing. Sorry, I'm starting to get a little sidetracked. So I was saying the hand grenade was a good alternative for the men since they were short on artillery. It was causing fear between both sides. One important event that took place in May after the Second Battle of Krithia was the British, or I, I should, more precisely, I should say, the Gurkhas of the 29th Indian Brigade taking a bluff that would become known as Gurkha Bluff, which drove the Turks back 500 yards. The Gurkhas bravely climbed the bluffs of the Nola under the cover of darkness and were able to maneuver behind the Turkish lines north of Y Beach. They surprised the Turks, catching them off guard, which resulted in the Turkish being pushed back along the bluff. After the Second Battle of Carithia came to a halt, there were just small skirmishes like this one and the constant harassment of small arms fire and hand grenades. But by no means did that translate to it being a safe zone. It was still a very dangerous place to be. There were snipers embedded everywhere, and if you showed too much of a silhouette, you were more than likely to receive a headshot. It was a very common for pals to be chit-chatting away or, or BSing their way through the day. Aside from cleaning your rifle, it's what soldiers do when they're not doing anything. Well, 
soldiers often forget the dangers lurking behind a scope. They sometimes get careless. Then, boom, you're gone, or your buddy's laying there with his head blown open. Just like that, as fast as you can snap your fingers. This was happening on both sides all day long. You know, earlier I said mass graves had been created along the beaches, but out in no man's land, it was a different story. They didn't have the luxury of burying the dead. The corpses were piling up, rotting, putrefying, feeding the rodents and the insects, becoming all mushy and boily, stinking to high hell. And there was nothing the men could do about it. Artillery was still being fired here and there, and peeking over the trench put yourself at risk with snipers. So going out into no man's land to retrieve the dead from the previous battles wasn't really an option. A second lieutenant wrote home saying the following, I had to dig a dugout for protection from the shells. I had only gone down about three feet when I saw a piece of cloth, which I tried to pull out of the way, but I found it was part of a dead Turk who had been buried there. However, there was no time to waste. So my sergeant and I slept on the Turk that night. I felt awfully afraid that first night or two when the shells were screaming all over and the bullets were ping-ponging all around. But I am quite used to them now. Expect me home safe and sound as soon as we have finished off the Turks. Within the last few hours, two Turkish shells here have burst within 20 yards of me. But I am bulletproof. You see if I am not. Second Lieutenant Fred Jones, 1st of the 9th Manchester Regiment. Poor Fred. He was killed by a sniper just 11 days later after writing that. A corporal wrote about seeing Fred get shot, saying, We were standing in shrapnel goalie from which our trenches branched off. Lieutenant Jones and two other officers were standing on the top talking. Suddenly, Jones fell. Have you slipped, Jones? But when they looked at him, he was dead. They carried him away on the stretcher and buried him in the gully. Corporal T. Valentine, 1st of the 9th Manchester Regiment, end quote. You know, there's chaos all around. Again, even if there's no battle, and I'm saying that with quotation fingers, it's still a battlefield. They still had to be on their guard all the time, 24-7. And men in this situation have a choice. They harden up or they lose their mind. And those who harden up accept the hand that had been dealt to them for that time. And with this, they begin to develop a sense of humor that can only be appreciated by other veterans. It really is what gets them by each day. This is how most make the time pass a little easier. Soldiers have talked about accepting this madness for generations. A man from the Foreign Legion told a story of a prank he played on his pals. He said the following. One of our greatest needs was cigarettes. And after a battle, some of us would volunteer to creep out and search the dead Turks for tobacco of which they seemed to have plenty. One night, I found a nice big packet of tobacco in the coat of a dead Turk. On the way back to our lines, I rolled myself a cigarette, but at the first puff, I was nearly sick. God knows how long that Turk had lain out there, but the tobacco had become tainted by his decaying body and was putrid. I rolled about 20 cigarettes and distributed them to the men in my company 
who were duly grateful until they tried to smoke them. Our jokes were a bit on the gruesome side, but then so were the conditions in which we were living and dying. Private Cornelius Jean de Bruin, Légion Entrangier, end quote. Most people would think that joke is very distasteful, but for others, like the French Foreign Legion, this is what they did for fun in order to keep themselves from going mad. I have to tell you one more quote by a Frenchman. This one is really quite disturbing. He wrote about the conditions, saying the following. Along the beach were buried enemy corpses. They had been hurriedly buried just under the sand and pebbles. The crabs swarmed about them in their hundreds. If you knocked over one of the Turkish boots, their hideous living contents came scuttling out. Terrifying. The legionnaires quickly harvested this veritable larder to make delicious bouillabaisse. We certainly didn't eat it, although they said it was delicious. Lieutenant Henry Fuel, 30th Regiment, end quote. That's, I mean, that's just wrong. That's, that's downright disgusting. I can understand and appreciate what people do in order to get calories when they're starving, but to eat crabs that have been feasting on the dead, it's just gross. And when you have corpses that are rotting, putrefying as the days pass, you'll naturally get hordes of flies. And actually, it wasn't only the rotting dead that attracted them. It was the open latrine conditions that that they were also feasting on, if you know what I mean. The latrine situation was horrifying, but it wasn't the soldier's fault. They didn't have the luxury of constructing some sanitary conditions. This was a battlefield and a dangerous one at that. They would have to use the bathroom when and where they could. If it was a safe spot and nature called, drop drawers and let it go. And often they would have to wipe themselves with their hands and then would try to clean those paws as best as they could. You know, TP wasn't exactly seen as a necessity back then. Yeah, think about it. They're sharing food in some cases, cigarettes, you know, they're touching their mouth, rubbing their eyes. This is where dysentery and, and other diseases start coming along. It's a god-awful situation. I've done nature's call on many occasions in the woods, the swamps, the desert, horrific porta-potties, strange outhouses, makeshift crappers, and many other places that I've become a pansy ass when it comes to my latrine habits now. I make it all romantic now. I play soft music. I dim the lights. I want to enjoy the moment now. I'm kidding about the music and lights, but I am extremely picky or pansy ass when it comes to the latrine. In fact, I've been known to leave a stadium if sitting is what the situation calls for. I mean, when I go on trips, I have to plan out where clean bathrooms are located. I, I don't care what you think of me. Judge me all you want. I've learned to appreciate a clean toilet and latrine because I've been in some shitty situations and trust me, it really sucks. So I can sympathize with what these boys had to go through back then. I mean, when I think about it, it must have just been a complete nightmare. Dysentery is no joke, and it was common at Gallipoli, just as it was on the other fronts. 
you know, all these flies just feasting on the dead and feces and the same flies would land on the soldier's food. And I think you get the picture. All right. Let me switch gears away from the poop show. On the last episode, I talked about the men at sea and how they're playing a part in this campaign. The German Imperial Navy had dispatched some U-boats and ships to support the campaign in the Mediterranean and are en route. And this made the Allied ships like the Dreadnoughts a little nervous because they know what the submarines are capable of. On the 13th of May, in the early morning hours, a Turkish destroyer named, now I already know I've already butchered this. I've tried saying it. I know I'm not going to say it right, but I'm going to try once. The Malvane y Mille. <laughs> Anyways, this ship managed to sneak up on the HMS, HMS Goliath, which was guarding the right flank of the French position. Shortly after 0100 hours, the Goliath spotted the destroyer and issued a challenge. The Turks quickly replied to this by firing off three torpedoes. By the time the British had fired back, the first Turkish torpedo immediately hit, quickly followed by the second. Many of the men aboard the Goliath were awoken by this thunderous explosion and shaking of the ship. It immediately began to capsize. As the ship laid on her side, the third torpedo hit. The Turkish destroyer quickly sped off and escaped unharmed under the cover of darkness as other British ships arrived to rescue the survivors. Out of the 750 crew members, 570 sailors, including the ship's commander, Captain Thomas Shelford, were killed. Today, the HMS Goliath lies upside down at 207 feet below the ocean surface, largely covered in sediment. Only part of the hole that was badly damaged in the explosion is visible. For sport divers who have an interest in seeing shipwrecks, the Dardanelles is like a dream destination. It's littered with wreckage at the bottom of the straits, and it looks absolutely stunning. Definitely on the bucket list. On episode 36, I talked about the German U-21 sinking the HMS Triumph off Anzac on the 25th of May. Well, just two days later, on the 27th, it returned for another kill. This time, it was the HMS Majestic. German U-boat commander Otto Hersing maneuvered back down to the Hellas, where the Majestic was parked just off W Beach. The day was just getting started for the crew as doom approached. At 0645 hours, U-21 launched two torpedoes. And despite the protective measures taken to prevent torpedoes, such as torpedo nets, both torpedoes hit their target. It created a massive explosion, a dual explosion. A journalist from the Daily Telegraph was aboard the Majestic when it was hit. He later described it, saying the following. I was aroused by men rushing by me, and someone trod on, or stumbled against my chest. This awoke me, and I called out, What's the matter? A voice replied from somewhere, There's a torpedo coming. 
I just had time to scramble to my feet when there came a dull, heavy explosion about 15 feet forward of the shelter deck on the port side. The hit must have been very low down, as there was no shock from it to be felt on deck. The old majestic immediately gave a jerk over towards port and remained with a heavy list. You could tell at once she had been mortally wounded somewhere in her vitals, and you felt instinctively she was not going to stay afloat long. The sea was crowded with men swimming about and calling for assistance. Ellis Arshmed Bartlett, Daily Telegraph, end quote. After the two torpedoes hit, the Majestic sunk in just under 10 minutes. However, of the 700 crew members aboard, only 40-plus sailors perished. And I say plus because I've read 40, 49, 43, and because I can't verify the actual count, I'm just going to say it was in the 40s. But the big story to this is the Allied Navy now had a dangerous presence from their enemy in the waters. This definitely didn't help the situation at Gallipoli. Commander Hersing was their menace. Otto Hersing had quite the career in the German Navy. Born in 1885 in Mulhausen, Germany, he entered service in 1903 and was promoted in 1906 to Lieutenant and was put aboard the light cruiser Hamburg. In 1909, he was again promoted this time to Oberleutnant, and from 1911 to 1913, he served as watch officer on the cruiser Hertha. In 1914, he was again promoted, this time to Capitan Lieutenant, which he then received special sub submarine training for a new type of warfare. He then took command of U-21 after the Great War broke out, which he then began to rack up the kills. In early 1915, he was awarded the Iron Cross. His success at the Dardanelles, which eventually forced the Allies to withdraw their ships from Cape Helles. Great Britain offered a 100,000-pound reward for the capture of Commander Hersing. On the 5th of June, 1915, he received Germany's highest military award, the Pour Le Merit, for his actions at the Dardanelles. He went on to cause more havoc and created fear in the waters during the Great War, and it's believed he was responsible for the sinking of U-21 in 1919 after it was supposed to be surrendered to the British after the armistice agreement. Hersing ended his military career in 1924 due to health reasons. He lived out the rest of his days with his wife. He died in Munster in 1960. At the German U-Boat Museum or Deutsches U-Boot Museum in Niedersauchen, there's a room dedicated to his memory. Now, there was a lot of political drama taking place in London in May of 1915. And as much as I dislike politics, this really does play a part, so I should talk about it. On the 14th of May in London, the War Council met to determine what the next steps for the Dardanelles would be. Lord Kitchener was completely against an evacu evacuation, so this wasn't even an option. But they didn't know what it would take to make any progress. So he wrote to Hamilton, basically asking him, how many more divisions would you need in order to get the job done? Hamilton replied with three divisions, not to include the 52nd division that was already promised. But the government in London was changing by the day. The liberal government was on the verge of collapsing, which it eventually will do. 
They've lost almost all support because of the war situation. The British citizens are fuming at this point. Families from all around on the daily are receiving death notifications. They haven't heard from their loved ones. They know the war had turned into something that wasn't so glorious after all. And excuses are being flung around. Excuses such as there's not enough artillery to support the men. But excuses weren't being heard. Not no more. They wanted this war won and done. The liberal government did fall and a new conservative government took over on the 25th of May. Several key figures from the previous survived and were retained under the new government, but others did not. One person that didn't make the cut was Winston Churchill. You know, after bitter arguments with Sir John Fisher, which led to Fisher's resignation on the 15th of May, the disasters at the Dardanelles, and because he chose the wrong party in 1904, meant his tenure as Lord of Admiralty was terminated. He was demoted down to Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. He was replaced by a veteran conservative, former Prime Minister Arthur Balfour. The War Council was renamed the Dardanelles Committee. In 1916, Churchill joined the army and was temporarily promoted to Lieutenant Colonel and was given the command of the six Royal Scots Fusiliers. Him and the Six was deployed to the Belgian forest Plogstiet for three months. There, they did endure the constant artillery bombardments, but no German assault was ever launched on their line. After a few months, the Six Scots were merged into the 15th Division, and Churchill was brought back down to his actual rank of major and then sent back home. This new war council consisted of six members from the original, five conservatives, and of course, Kitchener. And with all these shenanigans, they didn't actually meet again until the 7th of June. So Hamilton would have to make do with the 52nd Division. And I bring this political dog and pony show up, not only because it plays a role, but it also is to show how really screwed, or actually, let me rephrase this. It shows how the politicians really screwed the boys on the beach. You know, the men are fucking desperate, extremely low on artillery, low on supplies, death all around them, no reinforcements to make a move. And now they're in the trench warfare business. They call on the leaders back home, but these guys are too busy playing grab ass politics instead of giving the immediate attention where it's needed. I mean, Jesus, does history repeat itself or what? The Turks, on the other hand, are well prepared. They're dug in good. And they had the positional advantage. If that's a word, positional advantage. If not, you get my drift. But the Turks did have their kryptonite as well. They were also short on shells and ammunitions, just like the Allies. The Germans had the Eastern and Western Front to supply. It is true that the Allies were regaining their health. The 29th Division was being restocked. Men were catching their, their breath and recovering. The Royal Marine Brigade had been reunited with the rest of the R&D. The arrival of the 126th Brigade completed the 42nd Division, and the 52nd Division was en route. But Hunter Weston still believed that every day they waited, the Turks were becoming stronger. And this was true. 
So now was the time to make another great assault. But Hamilton favored not to make an assault without the 52nd Division. He said, let's wait until they arrive. But there was a push to get this attack going. Part of the push to hurry this thing along was also coming from London and Paris. They wanted results fast. Remember, the citizens are getting extremely fed up. This was all supposed to be over and done with by Christmas of 1914. And now we're already in May of 1915. So the decision was made. They would launch another massive assault on the 4th of June without the 52nd Division, which would be called the Third Battle of Krithia, which I'll cover on the next episode. As I said in the beginning, there was a lot that took place in between the Second and Third Battle of Krithia. The momentum for the Great War was increasing fast. The seas have become a dangerous place. The trenches are a death trap. Citizens aren't feeling the same about this as they first were. Governments are walking on thin ice. It's become a real mess. A few episodes ago, I talked about uh, trading goods with other soldiers when you're in the military. I'd like to give a big shout out to uh, one listener. I don't want to say his full name, so I'll just say Jay Lambert. Jay wrote saying he was a medic in the British Army. When he was deployed, he swapped out a Leatherman with a U.S. soldier for a Serbian helmet and then donated that helmet to his unit. Very cool story, Mr. Lambert, and very cool you presented that to your unit. I've traded probably a handful of multi-tools, except they were Gerbers, not Leatherman. Our RPX always seemed to have a deal going on Gerbers, and people love them. And a big shout out to all you fans. I've been getting some great feedback for this podcast. It, it really pushes me to keep this thing going. It's amazing how far this has come, and it's only going to get better. I hope everyone is doing great, staying healthy during these crazy times. Have yourself a nice cocktail if you're of legal age, and cheers to you all. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.